Last time uh, we were together, uh, this is before the Heart of the Home Women's Conference, we took an evening uh, to contrast the true gospel with what we might call an insufficient gospel. And um, to provide the contrast, we read from a popular gospel presentation, and I believe it was clear to all of us as we went through that, that that uh, Though that presentation was um, Bible-ish, it, it kind of fell short of being biblical, truly biblical, fully biblical. And I said when we started that evening uh, that while we needed to be critical to promote discernment about the gospel, we want to affirm at the same time people's attempt to evangelize. There's nothing worse uh, than an armchair quarterback, you know, that person who's always lobbing criticisms from the sidelines, but they're unwilling to get up and go and try to do better. Uh, they just want to criticize things. Having said that, though, when it comes to the gospel, we can't afford to simply hand out an A for effort um, because this matters. A, uh, a Bible-ish gospel presentation, which is not truly biblical, that's really misleading at best and could be even damning at worst. And that, of course, is a very, very big deal. Um, and I, I want to be clear here up front that we don't think it's a big deal to get the gospel wrong uh, because we're afraid that God's elect aren't going to somehow be saved. God will do what he's going to do. Um, I don't know if you remember, I don't know, when I was growing up, in the youth groups I was growing up, there were those skits, you know, where it had um, like a line of people going to uh, stand before God, and there was a line of people on one side and a line of people on the other. It was clear that one side was, they were heading off to an eternity in hell, and the other side, there was, they were heading off to an eternity of heaven, and one high schooler would look in, out of one line, the hell line, to the high schooler in the other heaven line and say, why didn't you tell me? You know, that kind of thing. I don't know if, anybody, anybody see those skits? Me too. Yeah, no, that's what I grew up with. That kind of, uh, let's just call it sanctified manipulation. <laughs> but uh, they were all designed to guilt us into sharing our faith with our classmates. Um, God's plan to redeem his people is not dependent on us. Praise God for that. But getting the gospel wrong is a very, very big deal because we do not want to be false witnesses of God. That, that is a, a terrible place. It's not fitting that those who profess Christ should misrepresent him, uh, misrepresent Christ, misrepresent God. We don't want to be guilty of promulgating a false gospel. Um, it breaks our heart, really, to misrepresent our God and to contribute to anybody else in going astray or to testify wrongly about the Christ of God. Christ of God. His, his truth is just so precious to us. So... I want to spend some time this evening, and it's sort of by way of reintroducing our subject of evangelism, and I want to take some time here to note how important it was to Paul to get the gospel right, okay? And to that end, turn in your Bible to Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're, um, we're getting close here in our study of evangelism and apologetics. I told you we're going to go through a method, uh, learn a method for sharing your faith, just to give you some boldness and confidence in, in uh, trying to share your faith. We're also going to come back to some apologetic principles, which 
um, are a bit heady, but you've all been introduced to all the principles already, so it's not going to be anything you can't handle. Um, but we're going we're gonna to learn a method for evangelism because we, we want to give you something in your mind, a little, a little um, I don't know if you want to call it a system or a presentation that you can kind of go through from step to step to know, okay, here's how to do this. So it just gives us confidence when we go out and kind of have a little bit of a script in our head. But at the same time as we're giving a, a method, we want to make sure that we understand the theology of evangelism. We want to understand the theology of this gospel that saves us. If we simply adopt a method and we don't understand fully the message of the gospel, then we're in danger of drifting, aren't we? We're in danger of drifting in just some other direction. The method is merely meant to be a tool for encouraging us, for giving us confidence, for emboldening us, but it's the message that matters. So you can have all the methods you want, but if you get the message wrong, you're getting the gospel wrong and you're misrepresenting God, you're misrepresenting Christ. So we don't want to get it wrong. And that's a big deal. That's Paul's concern about the Galatian uh, believers. If you guys have read Galatians, you understand that they were uh, struggling. They were embracing this church, the, well, you should say the Galatian churches. They were embracing the teachings of a group of false teachers called the Judaizers. You ever heard, ever heard of the Judaizers? Um, so the Judaizers, they were former Jews, many former Pharisees, they didn't go by that name. They didn't say, hey, we're Judaizing Christians. Um, but that's what they've come uh, to be known to us as. Former Jews, many of them probably former Pharisees, they professed faith in the same gospel that was taught by the apostles. They claimed to embrace Jesus as Messiah. They claimed to follow all of his teachings. And they came into the churches, usually after Paul left, they came into the churches with biblical knowledge. And it wasn't just Bible-ish knowledge. It, was, it, was, it wasn't just like superficial understanding of Bible doctrine. Their arguments were Bible-saturated. They were deep. They were supported also by the weight of history and tradition, a continuity to the Old Testament. But their doctrine was just slightly askew. And that meant it was eternally damning. So it was a strategy of the Judaizers to start coming to church after Paul left. Uh, that's a good method. You don't want to face him. Um, but they preyed upon biblical ignorance of these indigenous uh, Galatians who had a pagan background. They didn't have a big, a solid, strong biblical background. And so the Judaizers took advantage of that. They had no, these guys had no background in the Bible, nothing to have discernment with. So they were clever, and they seemed to know so much more about the Scripture. And these former pagans were inclined to defer to these better-educated Christians with a Hebrew background. Kind of reminds you of what goes on today in the Hebrew roots movement. You know, they start to enter into churches, and they kind of take over and pull people away, uh, some of those groups. But uh, these former pagans are inclined to defer they understand that these Jews coming in who are now claiming to be Christians, they're better educated, better spiritual heritage, strong background in the Bible. And here was the main argument of the Judaizers. They emphasized the continuity between Moses and Christ. And they were telling the Galatians that they needed to come to Christ just like they did, just like, the just like these Jews did. Salvation started with submission to the law of Moses. And by entering through Moses, only then did they enter into Christ. 
So practically, that meant that all these Gentiles, they needed to become proselytes. That meant they needed to submit to the ritual of circumcision. So that is what would prepare them to receive the grace of Jesus Christ, sort of like they could present it as a strong continuity to the Old Testament, an orderly entrance into the faith that first comes through the Old Covenant and then through the New Covenant. After that, all that's what God did. Started with the Old Covenant, then went to the New Covenant. Why wouldn't uh, your entrance into this be the same? So we start with circumcision into Moses, and then we continue with baptism in Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to examine some of that and why that's wrong. Um, And it wasn't clear to these Galatians. In fact, there were more than just these pagan background Galatians who were deceived by this, as we'll see. Um, But we know that their teaching is a problem. If you look at Galatians 1, 6, Paul does not hesitate in condemning that teaching as damnable heresy. And as a good shepherd, Paul has a pastoral concern for clarity with these beloved Galatian believers. This is not a time here for sending mixed messages, for affirming all the good points of these Judaizers and saying, well, you know, they're so well-meaning, sincere people. No, he just comes right out the gate. This is a time for bold statements of truth. He says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That is Really, really strong language. Let him be accursed is tantamount to saying, let him be damned to hell forever. That's what he's saying. Is that Christian language? Apparently. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds rather judgmental, doesn't it? Wow, condemnation to hell? But yeah, that is Christian language. Paul's an apostle. He's drawing a line in the sand here. He's making a very clear distinction. He's saying, this is gospel. That is not. That not gospel is eternally damning. So Paul is writing about it here, not because the Judaizers' gospel was so blatantly and obviously false. If it was blatant and obvious, he would not need to write a letter. So the Judaizers' gospel seemed to be true. There seemed to be some elements of, of verity and truth in it. So they, these guys were professing faith in Christ. They affirmed Jesus of Nazareth as not the false Messiah who was crucified on the cross, but a true Messiah. They, they called him Lord, Savior, just like any good evangelical today, right? From all appearances, they seem to take obedience to the law very seriously. Uh, They weren't uh, antinomian in that sense, and probably better behaved than many of today's evangelicals. But but notice how many, uh, turn to Galatians 2, and starting verse, um, let's see, yeah, go to verse 11. Notice, Notice how many of the early Christian leadership failed to take to spot the error of the Judaizers. If, this goes all the way to the top, starting in verse 11. Cephas, another name for Peter, 
says, but when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. (laughs) That's strong. Wow. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, as Peter did in Acts chapter 10, right? Ate with the Gentiles. Everything's clean, Peter. Get up, kill and eat. Peter's like, I'm good. Let's have some ham. Let's have some bacon. (laughs) So before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's the Judaizers. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Wow. I just, I marvel at this, imagining this scene, you know, just being part of church leadership, that this Paul is exposing, he's outing Peter right in front of everybody. (laughs) That's very, very hard. He's like, you live like a Gentile, Peter. All these guys from Jerusalem, all his buddies, all these guys from the circumcision party who he wants to impress, and he's, he's, uh, he's exposing Peter as his hypocrisy. Well, that's really, really tough. So the apostle Peter, Paul's good friend Barnabas, both of these guys had succumbed to the pressure of these Judaizers. They, these guys came from James. That is to say, they came from the Jerusalem church. They claimed to be aligned with and supported by the eldership of the Jerusalem church. And here Peter and Barnabas, they'd made the mistake of being respecters of persons rather than inspectors of words. Okay. Rather than examining these men, their credentials, and their, uh, they, they should have been examining their teaching, not their credentials, not who they seemed to represent, but actually what they taught, what they were, they should have thought carefully about the implications of their teaching. So we need to ask here, what, did, what made this Judaizer gospel a false gospel? We are, we're going to read a few passages here, and I want you to think about the answer to that question. What is it that makes the Judaizer gospel a false gospel? And I'm going to ask that question again and get your interaction because this is crucial foundational stuff here. Um, Paul is making in Galatians, he's making a sustained argument. He's dealing first in chapters one and two with the issue of authority because these Judaizers had come in and tried to undermine his authority and say he's, he's not to be listened to. Really, it's us who represent James and the elders and Peter after all and Everybody in Jerusalem, we kind of come with the credentials. You need to listen to us. And so because he'd been slandered so much and his diminished, his reputation had been diminished, his credibility was diminished, he spends time in chapters 1 and 2 defending and reasserting his apostolic authority and his claims. But then he starts to emphasize the doctrine that makes his gospel unique, starting in chapter 3, which is this doctrine. It's the doctrine of justification by faith. This letter... The rest of the letter from chapter 3 through chapter 6 is really beating that drum, laying down the principle, the practical implications of justification by faith. Now, what I want you to do is turn to chapter 6, because we're going to kind of back our way into Paul's argument here. The practical demand on the Galatians 
was the fact that they were being required to get circumcised as a matter of Christian commitment. Here in chapter 6, Galatians 6, Paul exposes here the motives. Uh, he's already argued all the way through. He's argued theology and practical implications, but he wants to come to the end and expose their motives. That's what I want to start with. The motives of the Judaizers who taught this false doctrine, because at the, at the heart, these guys are motivated by the fear of man and by pride, by this desire to boast in what we would call today, boast in numbers. What Paul there says, boasting in the flesh. They want to make converts. So look at Galatians 6, 12 and following. He said, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they have they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for, from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So, just having read that, what do we know so far? First, that the, the Judaizers are teaching a false gospel. We don't know the full nature of it yet, but Paul has not left us in any doubt starting in chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. It's a false gospel. Secondly, we know that their false gospel was not immediately and obviously detectable as false, because even those bona fide church leaders like Peter, like Barnabas, were, they were themselves deceived in Galatians 2. Third, we know that the Judaizers are here motivated to preach this version of the gospel, firstly, because Galatians 6.12, they didn't want to endure opposition from their fellow Jews. So they didn't want to take any flack. They wanted to come to Christ without pain, without suffering, without controversy. But secondly, they also wanted to boast in numbers. They wanted to count converts. And I just wanted to tell you as a practical footnote, do not be fooled by numbers. False gospels will always be more appealing to the unconverted. And so they're always going to attract higher numbers and higher counts than the true gospel produces. We know that. Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. Okay? So don't be fooled by numbers. Um, higher conversion rates usually indicate that the, the opposite of what we tend to think as Americans. Uh, we tend to count numbers and money and bottom lines and all that. That's the wrong way of going about it when we come to the truth of the gospel. Large crowds, large flocks, massive popularity, the place where all the cool people hang out, that usually means something is very wrong. It's a good indicator that we need to watch carefully and listen carefully to what, you know, whether, whether it has to do with the message, whether it has to do with the means of attraction, or a little bit of both, okay? So, I want you to notice something, though, in the section we just read, Galatians 6, 2, uh, 12 to 16. According to what we read here, what is the most important and the most crucial issue in true conversion? What is the most essential issue? Let me read it again. Yep. Read it again. Here we go. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it from me, though, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So what is the most important, most crucial issue in true conversion? True conversion. True conversion is the most important issue in true conversion. Okay. A heart changed by God. A heart changed by God. Good. Anybody else want to? A miracle. The work of Christ. A miracle. A new creation. That's the language right there. That's the language in Galatians 6, 15. What counts is not circumcision nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You can call it a miracle. You can call it, what did you say? A heart changed by God. New creation. That's exactly right. So, what counts? Not an external ritual. What counts as a new creation? What's required to produce a new creation? God. Right? The Holy Spirit. Good. So regeneration by the Holy Spirit. This is con- talking about the new birth. The new birth is what results in a new creation. God's work, God's initiative, that is what counts. For all those who walk according to that rule, verse 16 says... Peace and mercy be upon them. Okay, peace and mercy be upon those who walk according to that rule. The word rule there in verse 16 is the word canon, which refers to, like we call the canon of scripture. It refers to a standard, the rule of measurement. Those who walk according to that standard, that canon, that rule, this standard of new creation life for them and them alone Peace and mercy are self-evidently resting upon them. That is to say, they are Christians and the others are not. If you have not been created as a new creation in God, by God, then you're still unconverted. So as I said, the issue in these young fledgling Galatian churches was circumcision. Okay, that was the, that was the practical thing they could see out in front of them. But I've seen the same errors abounding today, okay? And I want to give you an example of that. As a young Christian, I uh, attended college at Metropolitan State College at Denver, and I encountered this perplexing cult. Uh, It was an arrogant cult, very aggressive, called the Denver Church of Christ. Have anybody ever heard of the International Churches of Christ? They take the name of the city, so Denver Church of Christ, L.A. Church of Christ, uh, Boston Church of Christ. That's where it kind of started out in the, in the Boston area. But I encountered this. I was a young Christian, and they these Den- people from the Denver Church of Christ, very aggressive. They kind of used an Amway multi-level marketing pyramid scheme as a as a no seriously as a way of constructing their church. So the attraction for you as a new convert was to get other new converts underneath you, and you kind of ruled their life. So they confessed to you, I mean, all your stuff. You had to confess to your discipler. And then you had other people doing that to you. You could go to, it could come down from the top. And this happened. Hey, um, so-and-so up here at this level wants you to move to Georgia because the gospel needs you there. Pack up their stuff, and they'd be gone. Wait, we don't do that here. 
What's that? We don't do that here. Um, we, we do not, Scott. <laughs> don't, don't go anywhere. That's my order. <laughs> no. We'll talk to you after. But, um, but, uh, but it, was a, it was a very serious, uh, you know, Amway was popular at that time, and this whole multi-level marketing, pyramid marketing and everything was popular. And so this kind of fit right in with the spirit of the age. But um, they had the same Judaizing spirit, but for them, it wasn't circumcision. It was baptism. Baptism was the symbol of their error, not circumcision. For me, this was very, very instructive because in dealing with this aggressive, influential cult, God taught me as a young Christian the true nature of what constitutes a human work and then the true nature of saving faith. Before I get to that, I'm going to come back, but I want to just read just a little bit more. Turn to Galatians 3, verse 1. This is where Paul gets into the, the doctrinal section. After defending his apostleship, he comes into this doctrinal section. And look at Galatians 3, 1 to 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, that is, through his, his apostolic testimony, his witness, his gospel. So you didn't physically see him, but that's, uh, see him crucified. He's not saying that. But he, he says in verse 2, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We got more to read, um, but stop there. And with that in mind, what made the Judaizers' gospel, according to those verses, a false gospel? How did it drift from just some slight error deviation into damnable heresy? Alyssa. Because it's the works of the law. So did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So they were focused on the works, not the faith. Okay, so works of the law, not by the Spirit. Good. Scott? I might be off in the comparison, but uh, Tim Keller's Prodigal God defines the elder brother as a religionist, and a religionist is somebody who does those things to get God's stuff, not to associate with God or be closer to God or to be even obedient. I agree with that. Okay. I agree with Luke 15 and that, that uh, explanation of that parable. I think that parable is told to expose the, and really to call in, 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 uh, in grace, Jesus is really calling to the Pharisees who can't rejoice in the salvation of sinners. They're, they are the older brother pictured in that parable. So yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and they are doing the works out on the outside. They look like any of us, better than us. But really at their heart, they don't want God's heart. They want well, his stuff. They want his, whatever his favor provides. So that is, that is the issue. So... So the essential difference there in verse 2, um, you've got the works of the law versus the hearing with faith. Or look at verse 3, you've got beginning by the Spirit or and versus continuing or being perfected by the flesh. So you can see that contrast, but I want you to understand the theological distinction at this point may not strike you just yet. The key here is at the very heart of it, a man-centered gospel versus a God-centered gospel. Okay, keep that in mind as we continue reading. Starting in verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now he's, he's concerned that they didn't actually receive the gospel. He's, 
He's doing the unthinkable in today's evangelicalism of questioning somebody's salvation. You know, he's loving here as a pastor. He cons he's concerned. Are you really saved? Did you suffer these things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he, verse five, who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay? So again, what is the difference in those verses between the true and the false gospel? What do you see? It's okay if you feel like you're repeating, because you're going to be repeating. That'd be faith versus works. Okay. Where do you see it? What, what verse? Um, well, there's several, but uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So okay. Faith. Believe. Right. Not by his works was it counted to him as righteousness, right. but by faith. Okay, so it's implicit there, where you see it stated very clearly beforehand. Joe. And God justifies Verse 5. God justifies. Verse 5, yeah. God justifies. Does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Good. So there it is. Verse 5. Works of the law versus hearing with faith. This, this hearing with faith is what save, has saved all those who are of faith, starting with Abraham, who believed God. It was counted to him or reckoned to him, or we could say imputed. That's the theological word, imputation. Imputed to, to him as righteousness. And that right there is the heart of justification. We'll talk about that a little bit more next time. But imputation is the heart of justification. Justification by faith. It's the major theme that runs through Galatians from start to finish. And that doctrine, according to Martin Luther, is the article in which the church stands or falls. Maintain justification by faith, and the church stands firm. It's strengthened. It thrives in fruitfulness and faithfulness to the gospel. But the moment we waffle on the doctrine of justification by faith, the whole gospel unravels. It completely comes apart. Why is that? Because only the salvation that is grounded in justification by faith alone, that is the only salvation that is of God from start to finish. It's a God-centered gospel. It's not at all man-centered. Only justification by faith is a gospel of divine merit. Has nothing to do so whatsoever with human merit. Okay? That is the issue. We'll talk about that more in just after this question. I would say that um, that uh, like it's like confessionalism it is this is the modern day Judaism and that's that was that I grew up with um, in our churches, which is if if you had made some profession of faith as a child, prayed a prayer or whatever, then um, that was really the, what was necessary for salvation. Um, and salvation was not really a miracle because uh, most of the churches we grew up in were kind of Arminian, and so um, you—that that was the you know you had to have that. And so anybody that became a Christian had to have some kind of you know uh, stamp that they had done that, and then they would look back to that to make sure that they had become a Christian. And it didn't really matter what their life was like. So that that was a work. It was a small work. Okay, it was good. A work. 
this it was is a, opposed to the miracle that actually has to happen. So this is a perfect segue into what we're talking about here because, and that is where what I was taught over and over is to continue reciting your testimony, right. your conversion story, because that's like this reaffirming, oh yeah, I did that. Oh yeah, I did that. Oh yeah, I did that. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, I prayed that. I went forward. I was baptized. It was from what God has to do to you. You, know? you got it. Because you did it. So back to my encounters with the Denver Church of Christ. This is where this came to clarity for me. I interacted a number of times with a very, very intelligent <clears throat> member of that cult. He was a young man who pressed me on what I believed, what I'd grown up with. He was a, a very frustrating guy, <laughs> sometimes infuriating to me. I wasn't altogether righteous in my interactions with him. I had to do some repenting. But those conversations with that guy were very clarifying and instructive in the long run. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Denver Church of Christ or the International Churches of Christ, they teach what's a doctrine called baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration says that you must be baptized in order to be regenerated. You must be baptized in order to be born again, okay? They use Acts 2.38 as a proof text where Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that seemed clear enough to that guy and the whole group. Repent and get baptized. That's your part. And you'll get the gift of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. That's God's part. You do your part. God does his part. That was the deal. I responded with my own set of proof texts. And I started with what I thought was a silver bullet, right? Where, where would you go? And you're thinking, where would you go? Romans? Did someone go to Romans? The whole book or just, yeah. I'm looking for a proof text. I'd go to the Bible. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That's where I went right there. Yeah. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Silver bullet. This is what best represented my position. And it really did contradict his teaching of baptismal regeneration. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So I've been trying to show him how his Denver Church of Christ gospel could be represented by this equation. Faith plus works, which is baptism, equals salvation. Okay? That's the equation. By contrast, the gospel I was teaching, which I believe the Bible was very clearly and consistently teaching, is faith equals salvation plus works like baptism and everything else. Okay? So you see the equation. On, in, in their gospel, it's faith plus baptism equals salvation. In the gospel we're teaching, faith equals salvation plus works that follow like baptism. It's interesting. He did not disagree with my characterization of his position. What he did is he challenged the nature of mine. He put it to me this way. When you became a Christian, you believed, right? I said, yeah. And you prayed and asked God to save you, right? I said, I sure did. So he continued, since you believed and since you prayed, what makes your believing and your praying any less of a work than my being baptized? Amen. That stopped me short because I could see his point there. I could see how my explanation of the gospel was sounding very similar to his, minus the baptism requirement. Repent and believe, pray and ask, that's your part. 
then you'll get the gift of forgiveness, salvation, the Holy Spirit, that's God's part. It was still due to get, as I was explaining it. How would you answer that challenge? Even the, even the profession, even the praying, even the asking God for, for forgiveness of your sins, even the asking God for salvation, even the repentance is, is a, a gift of God. Is, is because the Holy Spirit has pre-regenerated you. He has woken you from the so dead. Pre so pre-regenerated? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, re I know, that's probably not a good theologian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were doing, you were doing great until pre-regenerated. I'm just saying, yeah, yeah. yeah, he did it before. That's pre, pre means before. Pre means before. <laughs> So, yes, Leah. I was just thinking that we, we do because we can do no other, but it's still a reaction to his initiating grace on our behalf. So, okay. you, know, it, the, um, you know, the belief on the one side of the equation is still not exactly our work because it's something that he does in us first. Okay, so I can take what you're, I agree with what you're saying, but I don't think it goes far enough. And let me tell you why, because... We can look at our Arminian friends, our Roman Catholic friends, and they, they use this term called prevenient grace. It's pre, it's before. And that grace is from God, sure enough, and it prepares the soil, it kind of gets you ready. And then you do all these things. So what are you saying that's different? It's a fruit of regeneration. A fruit of regeneration. No, it's a fruit, your belief is a fruit too. What's that? Belief is a fruit of regeneration. It's all a fruit of you being saved. Okay, so belief is, and I want to be careful about the word saved, because the word saved is like a broad look at this whole thing. Woken up from the dead, resurrected. Okay, awakened from the dead. <laughs> but when you're, you're, when you're pre-regenerated, I love this. We'll give you credit for that term as it goes down in church history. So there were the Bartonians who followed a man teachings, the strange teachings of a man named Brett Barton. And he taught in pre-regeneration. So um I don't even know where I am in my notes here. You don't either. Yeah. Okay, so let me, let's go back to Scripture. How's that? Um, so back to the Gospel, uh, the passages we read, draw out some verses and phrases and words that really mark the key point of difference. Because what, uh, what Leah, Bryce, Brett are saying is, is right, is accurate. Regeneration is key. New creation. That's what kicks off this whole thing. Galatians 6.15. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Galatians 3.2-3. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having, then this phrase, begun by the Spirit. Are you now being perfected in the flesh? Galatians 3.5. Regarding their continuing sanctification. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you Works miracles among you, do so by the works of the law. I mean, is this a, is, are you meriting the work of the Spirit? No. Are you getting that? 
because it's a it's it's earned or did that come by hearing with faith so did you go to engine trap trying back to ephesians 2 and go to the first verses the first three verses we're going to get to all that okay. yes yeah you're anticipating me but that's because you're intelligent no. <laughs> that's <a> true <laughs> oh i just got your broad brush comment i was <laughs> I was thinking of you. I, see, it's funny because I wasn't even thinking of you in this in the same family anymore. Oh, I blame him, all of them. <laughs> even after he goes down as the the world's worst heretic. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm on the up. <laughs> I think you might take your wife's maiden name if you. <laughs> okay, no, I'm just goofing around. I. I, I, I Sort of. No, I'm just, no. Um, But so what, what those verses are teaching, Galatians 6.15, Galatians 3.2-3, 3, Galatians 3.5, what they're saying is consistent with the rest of Scripture, and it's this. The starting point for our faith, the place where we begin, is a new creation. That is a creative act. I think Brett used the term miracle. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That is the reason we believe, because of God's work and not ours. Okay, regeneration by the Spirit happens first, that's the source of the new birth, and that results in our putting faith in Christ. Salvation, then, is all of God. So, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, what's this? Grammatically, it's the whole phrase. It's having been saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay? It's that whole phrase. There's a contrast there between grace and works. And this brings up a crucial, crucial question. Biblically speaking, what makes work a work? What is it that is being condemned there as a work? What distinguishes a work as a work of faith rather than a work of flesh, which damns us? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I heard what? Anything you're proud of, okay? You're proud of your children. Work of flesh. <laughs> All right, watch that woman because she speaks very highly of her kids. So, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, okay. So anything I'm proud of uh, isn't far off the mark. Pride in myself. Okay. Anything that doesn't direct glory to God. Okay. Uh, this is you're touching right on it. Just uh, um, something I do. Something I do. The boasting of the flesh. Annie. Motivation. Okay, what's in the motivation? Okay, it's tied to boasting, anything I do. What else? Yeah. You see, you're self-righteous instead of holding the righteousness to God. It's very similar to what she said, though. Okay, so again, self-righteous, boasting in my own righteousness. Anybody else? Is it thinking that I could have done it myself in the first place? Is it a work that... Seems like it was under my own power that I chose to do versus. Okay. Yeah, because under my own power, choosing to do this is all touching around. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something. You're gonna be like, oh yeah, that's that's what I mean. Right? Like yeah. a, a work that you do to get to God, that's works of the flesh. A work that God has done through you, that's a work of faith. Okay. Good. Yes, that's true. That's true. So try out this as a definition. Okay. Biblically speaking, a human work is anything that finds its origin in man, 
which merits and or maintains God's approval. Okay? Biblically speaking, a human work is anything that finds its origin in man, which merits and or maintains God's approval. I'll say it one more time. A human work is anything that finds its origin in man, which merits and or maintains God's approval. Can you see how even my profession of believing can be a human work? Okay? Can you see, can anybody not see that? I take faith in, or I take, uh, I boast in my own faith, mm-hmm. basically, is what is going on. So, you made the right choice. You made the right choice. Your free will was directed in the right direction, you know? Somebody else, somebody else raised their hand. I think it was Mark. Yeah. I think going back to my salvation story, so to speak, um, I I always, it's it's an interesting point of wonder for me because I saw a path that led to homelessness and addiction and, you know, ungodliness and a path that led somewhere else that involved Christ. And I, didn't really see it as a, it was a no-brainer. I saw it as a no-brainer okay. to go with Christ. But I didn't see that choice as my choice at the same time. It was like the one that was given to me, like, here, here's, a, here's death or something else. Why don't you take something else was right. kind of the way I saw it. Um, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense there because I never really can get past that point theologically. I don't feel like I had a, anything to trumpet there as my yeah, I did something right here moment, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I understand exactly what you mean. I think everybody in here who's saved is going to understand what you mean. Um, that there is, a, there is a before and after. There's a time when the lights were off and a time when the lights went on and everything just seemed clear. You know, before we're chasing the path of death and then all of a sudden we're like, whoa, I'm just sitting around and swimming in death. This is bad. I need to go toward life. There's Christ. Put my faith in him. Chase that. Turn away from this. That just happened to us. Okay? Uh, I saw Lee. I keep coming back to the issue of dependency. Am I depending upon my confession of Christ? Am I depending upon his work on my behalf apart from anything I did? Right, right. Dependency. I like that word. I like, I like when I'm evangelizing, I like to stay away from the word believe. Disney has ruined that forever. You know, you can't talk about belief or even faith. Faith is such a vague term these days. It's, it's filled with all kinds of wrong meaning. I like to use the word trust and, and depending upon, embracing. I like to use terms like that to try to push the issue. What are you trusting? What are you depending on? What are you embracing? Um, yeah, Judy. God is awesome and holy. How could we ever do enough to get his approval in our sinfulness? You know, there's just no... (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We are so far from the holiness of God that even, even if we could from this moment on, like, never sin. What about all that sin we did commit? (laughs) How are we going to undo that? Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, Chuck. So um, I guess that, that brings me to a question about your definition of a work. Um, uh-huh. What makes a work a work? Because uh, when I look at this, kind of taking off on duty, human work is anything that finds its origin in man that merits or maintains God's approval. Well, that 
is nothing. I'm sorry, what is nothing? Um, a human work that finds its origin in man that merits or maintains God's approval. I mean, that's... Right. There is nothing that finds its origin in man. There is nothing that finds its origin in man that truly does merit. And what I'm trying to say is that there are many people who think that they find within themselves something that finds its origin that they can gain or maintain God's approval. So maybe you should put the word attempts in there. No, I don't want to. I like my definition. <laughs> um, it doesn't work, obviously. Well, I, that's what the definition is men, meaning to expose. Right. It's meaning to expose that biblically, human works are absolutely nothing. Right. They're, they're basically, all our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Because even our righteousness can't merit or gain God's approval or maintain God's approval. So it's meant to expose that. And so what I'm trying to say here, and this is what I want you to understand as we think about even the nature of saving faith, it does not find its origin in us. We exercise it, but it still doesn't find its origin in us. Okay, that's what I'm going to try to unpack here as we move through this. So according to this definition, if I'm trusting in my works or even in my own faith to save me, then I am the same as the Denver Church of Christ cultists I'm, who trust in baptism. I'm the same as the Judaizers who trust in circumcision. Because for them, that work is just an extension of what they're believing. Right? Even after conversion, if I trust in something that finds its origin in myself, whether it's faith or love or obedience or whatever it is, if I trust in anything that finds its origin in me, and I don't see its origin in God, by trying to find its origin in me, either to gain or maintain my standing before God, then I'm guilty along with the Galatians, Galatians 3.3. Having begun in the spirit, am I now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Okay? So as important as faith is, faith, we need to understand, faith is simply a channel. It's a, a conduit. And that is why God chose faith, sola fide. It's why he chose faith as the means of conveying the grace of his salvation. Because faith, by its very nature, has nothing that reflects back on the self. Okay? It's, it's focus, it looks away from self. Faith is forced to look outside of self to embrace the promises from a saving God. So faith is what actually turns our eyes in faith in spiritual sight. It directs, it's what, uh, it's what Scott talked about. All of a sudden I see that that's a path of death and that's a path of life. Why do I see that? Because God did that. That didn't find its origin and source in me. It found its origin and source in God who regenerated me and now my eyes were opened. He turned on the lights in the room and now I can see death, life. Okay? So faith is what gives us spiritual sight. It directs our trust to the object of faith, which is Christ, the righteous one. So by faith, I look away from myself to a righteousness that's not my own. Philippians 3.9, it's a righteousness not my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So faith is something that points, it is a subjective thing we exercise, but it is something that points to an objective reality, uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one whose life and death has been imputed or reckoned to my account. Faith is spiritual sight, which is my access into this grace by which I now stand. And in that sense, faith is a gift of God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It does not find its origin in the self. It doesn't find its origin in man. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? Okay. So back to my Denver Church of Christ nemesis. 
I needed to help him see that even my faith, even my believing, even my praying, none of that found its origin in me. It was granted to me by the grace of God. My faith is a gift from God, a gift of his grace. And that's what Paul says in Philippians 1.29. For to you, it has been granted that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's granted by for the sake of Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Okay? Your faith, your suffering, it's granted for the sake of Christ to you. Saving faith is a gift granted by God. We're able to exercise that faith because of the initiating work of the Holy Spirit. So look um, now at Galatians 5.2. Galatians 5.2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's interesting that he had Timothy circumcised. Timothy was from the Galatian region. Why would he do that? Not in order to have him gain salvation, which is what these Galatians were believing. They believed that this act of circumcision was making them ready for God's saving grace. It's an act or something that found its origin in them. If you do this, Christ is going to be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For if, um, or through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That, that, that term, notice it's the same thing we see in Galatians 6.15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but what? A new creation. And what's it say here? Faith working through love. Faith working through love and a new creation, same thing. They're parallel, okay? That only happens by the Spirit, verse 5, even though it's by means of faith. So, that's what counts. Abraham was circumcised. As I said, Paul circumcised even Timothy to avoid offense when evangelizing the Jews. So the issue is not circumcision. It's not the ritual. It's not baptism. What counts as a new creation? That's what produces and guarantees saving faith. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. He tells Nicodemus in that whole section there, I know you're not, net born, not yet born again, Nicodemus. You're not born again. Why do I know that? Because you don't believe. You don't believe. You don't receive our testimony. You don't receive my testimony, the, the word of the only one who's descended from heaven and now tells you the truth. You don't receive that. Why don't you receive that? Because you don't believe. Why don't you believe? Because you haven't been born again. That's the issue. Okay. Is that clear to everyone? Any questions? Yeah, Brett? So at some point, this is not a rabbit trail, but at some point for contrast sake, would it be helpful to go through prevenient grace? Because I've always wondered about that. We'll get to it probably next time. Yeah. Okay. Am I to avoid, because uh, that sounds like a circular argument, and I, at least atheists claim that a circular argument is always an illogical argument. Um, I don't really see it as illogical. That, that seemed perfectly reasonable to me, what you just said about having to be reborn. It's what Jesus said. Yeah, um, it's what Jesus said. Um, so I, I'm not understanding the circularity of it. See, at the end of the day, um, what intrudes into our circularity is the fact that God is. He's the only self-attesting authority right. who doesn't appeal to himself for proving himself. Okay, so he's a self-attesting authority. That's not circularity. It's just the fact that there's only one authority and he's absolute. So that's where atheists say, well, I don't accept that argument. Well, 
On what basis are you making rational arguments in, to begin with? You have no way of explaining your rationality except from something greater than yourself. And so that's, that's something else that uh, has to do with apologetics that we'll get to uh, okay. later. So if, like, well, like an atheist would say, well, if God's gonna, God has to make me believe and I don't believe, then they kind of try to pass the blame off on God. That's why I don't believe. They yeah, they certainly do. And I tried that one time with my dad. <laughs> when I was an unbeliever. I said, well, you know, this whole thing, Dad, you know, about God choosing and electing and stuff, I guess I'm just not one of the elect. My dad kind of looked down from his paper and said, huh, and he put his paper up. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you concerned? Don't I, didn't I just undo your entire Christianity? No, he was unaffected. <laughs> um, eventually, eventually I was born again. And I saw it his way. <laughs> it's just fascinating, though. Yeah, of course they're going to use that as a, as a smokescreen, as a cop-out, and try to blame God. That's the very nature of their error, is a moral rebellion against God. So of course they're going to do that. Uh, do you have a quick comment, or are you just, we'll like, just exercising? That, you know, that, that tends to come from a milquetoast uh, gospel presentation. Mm -hmm. If you present the gospel as... You are commanded and will be held accountable to repent and believe. Yeah. Then they tend to not come back with, well, I can't do it unless I, you know, what have been given to me, so why am I even talking to you about this? You just, because they can just say, you are commanded to repent and believe. Who yeah. knows when that will happen to you, but you better get on your knees and repent yeah. and believe. And, I, and I, t I typically say to people who tell me that, I say, you know, this very conversation is an evidence of God's loving concern for you. Yeah. It's a, it's a grace of God that you're hearing what you're hearing from me. And you have a choice right now. Just like Jesus told Nicodemus. You can't be born again except by the Holy Spirit. It's not up to you, Nicodemus. And yet he didn't say, so you're off the hook. Just, just hang out, you know, do whatever you want to. And no, he said, believe. Believe. Hmm? Keep counting your dill seeds. <laughs> yeah, keep counting your dill seeds, you know. Um, see if that gets tiresome. But... No, he didn't tell, he didn't let Nicodemus off the hook one bit. He just told him, you must believe. You have to be born again in order to believe, but on your part, you believe. And when you believe, you know you've been born again, Amen. right? So the dividing line between true Christianity and all other false religions, all false, false gospels, or even all those well-meaning but erroneous half gospels, we can clarify the nature of the dividing line by considering something called uh, an ordo salutis. Have anybody heard that name before? Ordo salutis. Ordo, what does it mean? Order of salvation, Latin. Okay, so it refers, ordo salutis, order of salvation, refers to the logical consecutive steps involved in salvation. Um, it's, it sounds fancier than it is, but it's just, it's just a way of trying to logically understand what comes first, second, third, fourth, even though a number of these things in the order of salvation happen simultaneously in, in temporal terms in, in time, but logically there's a consecutiveness, I guess, I don't know if that's a word, but uh, it's consecutive. Okay, so, and I really want to emphasize here, just for our purposes tonight, that in the order of salvation, and what comes first logically, not temporally, but logically, first, second, third, it comes down to the ordering of two elements, just two, which is a dividing line between all this other man-centered stuff and a God-centered gospel, okay? 
We've talked about this before, and I'm going to ask you once again, just for the sake of highlighting it. Logically, theologically speaking, which comes first, regeneration or saving faith? And I want you to explain your answer. I could also ask it this way. Do you believe so you can be born again, or are you born again so that you might believe? Anybody want to answer? None of the Bartonians. <laughs> Just a second. Paulette. Well, you're regenerated so that you can believe because you don't have the ability in yourself to believe unless God gives you that ability, opens your eyes to truth, and then you can believe. Okay, good. Because what is your condition before you're regenerated? Dead. Dead. Excellent. Good. Anybody want to disagree with Paulette? I don't recommend it. <laughs> Brett, right? Am I right? That's right. Don't mess with mom. So anybody want to elaborate on anything she said? Can I yes. Can I a scripture that, showed, that potentially shows that? We're going to go through some, but yes, but, please do. But in Matthew 16... Um, 16 through 18 is the classic story of yes. when Peter proclaims Jesus as who he is. That's right. And God's and Jesus says, yeah. you did not. Okay, yeah, go ahead so and read it. Says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build yeah. my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Good. Which other religions go that Peter is the one that they will not prevail against? But sure, yeah. That's not where we're going. I don't think. Excellent. I hope not. That yeah, no. Here long enough. <laughs> <laughs> not that one, but um. <laughs> no, that's an excellent text, and it illustrates the point. It, Jesus didn't affirm Peter's intellect. He didn't prefer, uh, affirm his. Been listening so well. Yeah. Right well, wow, what a great, what a good learner you are, Peter. Or. <laughs> Boy, you know, I'm so, how lucky you are. Or <laughs> look at your free will, you know, going in that direction. No, he didn't say any of that. He said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. My father is in heaven. That's exactly right. Okay, so just look at the time. Speeding ahead, I want you to turn over to Ephesians 2. All right, I've referenced this, but now we're going to look at it in a little more detail. It's God's initiative to save us, that's what causes us to, as Paulette said, that's what causes us to awake from the dead, to see the saving work of God in Christ, and um, to trust in him for eternal life. So apart from God's work, we just remain dead in our trespasses and sins. That's where Ephesians 2 starts. This is the classic passage, and I believe understanding this passage, it goes a long way in clarifying the gospel. And so we start with the true state of the unbeliever, which is that condition of spiritual death. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also, or we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Anybody not have that experience? <laughs> well, if you were born again when you were four years old or five years old, maybe you don't recognize but you were that right there um i know the four-year-olds that grew up in my home that was exactly what they were i've told you time and time again what voice are you listening to the spirit of the power of the air you know that's what that's what they were living into so the problem that unbelievers 
the, the problem that unbelievers are facing in coming to God, it's not that they're broken and need some mending. It's, it's not that they're wounded and need healing. It's not that they're limping along and need a stretcher to carry them to the pearly gates. The issue, like Paulette said, is that they're dead. They're dead. They are dead bodies. They need resurrection. They have to come to life. So apart from the sovereign initiative of God, who alone is able to raise the dead, an unbeliever will never seek God. He'll never trust the gospel. He'll never put his faith in Christ. So as we keep reading, that's inescapably clear. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What was our condition? A dead condition. What did he do? He made us alive. So you can uh, simplify a complex sentence just in this way. God made us alive. God made us alive. When we were dead in sins, God made us alive in Christ. It was his initiative which kicked this off in time and space because it was his sovereign love that chose us before time began. And that's also clear as we keep reading. In fact, Paul pictures this entire process, salvation from start to finish, as a sovereign work of God. Look at, uh, keep reading there, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there we are. We're in our dead condition. God gave us life. That kicked off a process that culminates in our full salvation. They're used in terms of raised up, seated. It also culminates in his full redemptive glory, verse 7. And that actually is the larger point to see in our own individual salvation is that this is all about the redounding of God's redemptive glory. So everybody sees that on display. God's glory is manifest in saving sinners. So it's of God from start to finish. And that's what Paul then comes around to explain in those famous verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And we're going to go into verse 10 for explanation, explanatory clause for by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. So that whole thing, having been saved by grace through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What, what matters? What counts? The good works, circumcision, baptism, anything like that? No. What counts is what God did in Christ Jesus, creating us a new creation. That's what counts. So even the good works that we now walk in as a result of our salvation, whether our prayers, whether um, works of faith, generosity, compassion toward people in need, whatever it is, God is the one. According to this verse, he is the one who, pre- who created us for those good works and then prepared those works for us in order that, that's a henna purpose clause, in order that we should walk in them. That is to say, he's been planning this all along from before the foundation of the world. We're just carrying out what he's already determined. We're walking in it. You're in Ephesians. Turn back a few pages to Romans 8. I want to show you this plan from a 
a bit of a broader perspective in Romans 8. Ephesians 2, um, 1 to 10, provides the detailed individual perspective, but Romans 8, 29 to 30 provides like the 30,000 foot view, okay? So here we go, Romans 8, 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be, that is Christ, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, you're familiar with that text, but what you may not realize is that right there is an ordo salutis. That is an order of salvation. That's a chronological or I'd say logical steps for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Okay, those are the theological terms. The details of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, they fit, they fit right between those terms called and justified. Okay, that's where you insert those. And they point to the final term glorified. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 does. Fits between called, justified, they point to that final term glorified. All those terms, by the way, are aorist verbs. The aorist is meant to convey a completed action. It's always in past time, but it's really the kind of action is a completed, finished action looked at as a whole. Not only that, but notice who's the subject of all those terms. God is, right? God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. He's the subject. The verb refers to completed action. Who's the object? The object is a group of people described here as those whom he foreknew. That is before time began. Those whom he predestined before time began to be conformed to the image of his son. So it's a specific group of people. That is to say, God didn't send his son to die for a way. He sent his son to die for people. He didn't, he didn't open a way of salvation that now you as the sinner can then choose to go into or not. He didn't offer you a gift and say, here, would you like it? And you can either choose to take it or not. He died for you. He had you on his mind when he died on the cross. Isn't that amazing? Specific group of people says that God knew them. And it's not just talking about his cognitive knowledge. God is omniscient. He uh, knows all things perfectly at all times. This is talking about the knowledge of relationship. It's, it's um, pro-gnosko. And gnosko referring to that, that knowledge and relationship. Knowledge of love and affection. This is Ephesians 2.4 language. These are those marked out by the great love with which he loved us. Okay, we're running a little short on time, but what I want to do, oh my. Okay. You've got next week planned already. It's fine. What's that? You've got next week planned already. You don't have to work on it this week. No, no, I've got other things planned for next week. Um, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through quickly here because I still want to sing a song. Ren brought his guitar, and uh, that's awesome to do, sing that. So let, let's do this. I'm going to give you, like we've just talked about an order of salutis from Romans 8, 29, and 30, kind of a, an, an order of salvation. What I want to do is kind of unpack that a little bit further and give you this logical consecutive steps that are involved in saving this group of foreknown sinners. And I'm going to contrast one list of an order of salutis with another list. The list that I'm going to give you first is what we teach her at our church. This is not going to be unfamiliar to you. This is going to be very familiar. 
you're going to say, eh, so what? But I'm going to give you another list. And the other list is a list of consecutive steps that much of the evangelical world follows. Their churches teach, their gospel presentations, which we all go online and download and use, they're all based on this second ordo salutis, okay? So I just want to show you that we are sometimes, in our gospel presentations, we're inconsistent with the theology that we actually believe and affirm and teach. We want to be consistent. So here's the ordo salutis that we teach here at Grace Church. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. It's consistent with the passages we've covered. It starts with eternity past and moves all the way up into eternity future. Okay, here's the list. Don't, you don't need to try to get this all down. Predestination. Um, election. It's an unconditional election. So predestination, unconditional election. Effectual calling. That is a calling that actually produces an effect. So predestination, unconditional election, effectual calling, regeneration, faith and repentance come after that, then justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance or preservation, and then glorification. Okay, let me repeat that. Predestination, unconditional election, effectual calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance or preservation, and glorification. Nothing terribly surprising about that, right? God predestined us for salvation, Romans 8.29, pro orizo, to mark out beforehand. Then he elected us, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. After that, he called us to salvation. That's also Romans 8.30. Whom he predestined, he also called. That calling was effectual. It resulted in our regeneration, that mysterious activity of the Holy Spirit that produced new life, made us a new creation. Or as Titus 3.5 says, God saved us not because works have done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Then we awoke, put faith in Christ. And by that faith, God justified the ungodly, declared him righteous. Then after justifying us, now that we're reconciled to God, he adopted us as his children, adopted us as sons. He's then going to sanctify us. He's going to preserve us to the very end, and he's going to glorify us in the very end. Okay, that's an order of salutis that we teach, we believe. Shouldn't sound unfamiliar to you because it's what we've been teaching here for a long time. Second, here's a second more common Ordo Salutis, which is far more prevalent in the evangelical world, and it is the foundational doctrine that informs many gospel, evangelical gospel presentations. It actually informs many of the ways people do ministry. It's, um, it's actually on a, in a typical church staff. You've got some who hold to the first, and some who hold to the second, and some who try to hold to a hybrid, and some who try to say, hey, I'm just pro-everything, or, you know, all kinds of stuff. So here's that Ordo Salutis. Starts with foreknowledge, which is defined not as God having a relationship beforehand, but it's saying God looked down the corridors of time, and he saw down there in the corridors of time those who would choose him. And then it comes into a conditional election. And the conditional, not unconditional, but conditional election. I choose you as long as you choose me. It's conditional on your choice. How is it election? I don't know. Anyway. I'm sorry, I shouldn't criticize it all the way through, should I? <laughs> oh, yeah, I should. All right. Foreknowledge. 
Yep. <laughs> Not because it's helpful information, but because it just practically gives you. T <laughs> cool. Good enough. So foreknowledge, which is redefined. It's not defined biblically. It's defined philosophically. Conditional election. Prevenient grace. That is a grace that reaches out beforehand and kind of softens the target a little bit. But it's still up to you. External calling. An external calling is a calling that falls on your ears that you can either accept or reject. Okay? Then, after the foreknowledge, conditional election, provenient grace, external calling, you have faith and repentance. After faith and repentance, God justifies. So, justification. After justification, then comes regeneration. You're given the gift of being born again. Really? Well, I, I love your moral clarity, Karen. I really do. I mean, you're dead right. But, but I grew up in this. This is what I grew up in. Well, because you're, you're in charge of your regeneration. You woke yourself up from the dead. Yeah. People take Jesus' words as you must be born again as a command. Like, go get born again. And they make the same mistake Nicodemus makes. How do I do this? How do I, do I enter in back into my mother's womb and be born uh, once again? Is that what I do? Tell me how to get this done. Billy Graham told him how. He wrote a book, how, you, how to Be Born Again. Yeah, that's right. And it follows this order salutis right here. So justification, so faith, you, you believe, you repent, then God justifies you on the basis of your faith, and then he causes you to be regenerated, giving you new birth, giving you the new birth. Then you're sanctified, then you're glorified. Okay. So we don't have time, as I mentioned, to unpack such things as conditional election, provenient grace, external nature of the calling, and all that. But when you compare this and contrast it with what the scripture teaches, I think you can see its deficiency. We need to be careful in our... Who's torturing a baby out there? Is that my wife? <laughs> Whose baby is it? Is that your baby, Bryce? <laughs> On behalf of the Allen household, I, I do apologize. <laughs> because I am the re representative head of my home. Um, okay, so, um, but listen, we, it, it's very important to unpack and kind of look under the hood with this theology so we can see what is driving the car, what is driving our evangelism. Is it, is it the one list, the order salutis, or is it the other? We need to be consistent. And if we're consistent, I'm telling you, <clears throat> it is powerful in helping you to explain the gospel to an unbeliever. And any method, any thing you memorize or anything is just going to be layered on top of what you already know and understand. And if you do away with the method, you can react to that. You can be light on your feet and adjust yourself to the person you're talking to. Very, very helpful. <laughs>